Well, our sermon text this morning is Psalm 69. I'll invite you to turn there if you have a Bible with you. Uh, the first Sunday of the month, we typically go through the book of Psalms in order, and so we're getting back uh, to that. So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Psalm 69, I'll invite you to stand if you're able to do so for the reading of the scripture this morning. Psalm number 69. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, To the choir master, according to lilies of David. And David writes, Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who would attack me. With lies, what I did not steal must I now restore. O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, Uh, At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to their punish add to them punishment upon punishment, may they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. 
When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning and give us understanding into this great psalm of David. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us your word uh, as a light to our feet, a lamp to our path, that in it you show us the way of life through faith in Christ. And we ask that you would teach us your word this morning, work in us by your spirit, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Even as we sang earlier in the service, Lord, speak, Lord, for your servants listen. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, Psalm 69, uh, you may or may not know, maybe you picked up on it as I was reading it, as you were following along, but the 69th Psalm is quoted a number of times throughout the New Testament. It's quoted almost as many times as Psalm 110.1, which is the most quoted verse uh, in the entire Old Testament. It's the one most quoted often in the New Testament. Psalm 69 is not far behind that. It's quoted a number of times. We'll see a number of those throughout uh, the sermon, Lord willing, this morning. Uh, psalm 69 is a lament, and it's a messianic psalm. It's a lament. What does that mean? A lament is where the psalmist cries out to God for mercy and help in time of suffering and trial. Uh, and that's what David was doing here in the psalm. As you listened, as I was reading it, David was crying out to God for mercy and help and during a time of terrible suffering at the hands of his enemies. Uh, laments, you might know, are one of the more common forms of, of uh, genre in the book of Psalms. When you read, if you read through all 150 Psalms, you will find quite a few laments. Psalms like this one, long and short, where the, where the, where the psalmist David or whoever else uh, wrote them, cries out to God, sometimes crying out, O Lord, how long? Now, the fact that the laments are so common in the book of Psalms should be instructive for us in at least two ways. The first thing, and I, I've said this before, that the fact that there are so many laments, I've read somewhere, I, I don't know that this is the case, but it may, it sounds right. It's the most common of all the genres in the Psalms. There are more laments, Psalms of lament, than there are Psalms that were simply of praise. Both are important, but the fact that there are so many laments throughout the book of Psalms should teach us uh, to, to exercise care in choosing the songs that we sing in public worship and in private worship. They, they ought not to be only songs that consist of syrupy, happy songs. Those have their place. Songs of praise and joy and rejoicing all have their place. They are important. But we, we should include hymns and psalms in our worship that equip us for times of affliction and sorrow and trial as well. Our songs are meant to do more than fill time before the sermon. They are meant to teach us and equip us for life in all kinds of situations that we might worship God no matter what kind of things we are going through in our lives. The second thing uh, that we should learn from, from this is the fact, that, the fact that there are so many laments in the book of Psalms ought to equip us to have a right expectation 
of the Christian life. We should have a right biblical expectation of the Christian life. The cross, even as it did in Christ's glorious life, the cross comes before the crown. Suffering in this life comes before the glories of heaven. Now, you know, in this life, you and I, I think we could say, we enjoy many blessings in this life. Far more than we deserve, to be sure. We enjoy many good and perfect gifts from our Heavenly Father, and we should seek to enjoy those to the glory of God. God gives us those things to enjoy. We aren't meant to be walking around miserable uh, for, for no reason. But Jesus also said, in this world, you and I will have tribulation or trouble. Even as Jesus has said in John 16.33, he also says elsewhere, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, what? Persecuted. There's nothing out of the ordinary if the world hates us, Jesus says. If they hate us, we should know why. They hated him first. And if they hate you as a Christian, it's because in some small way, They see the likeness of Christ in you. And the world responds very often with hostility to that. And so the Psalms of Lament should equip us when we sing them. They equip us more and more to endure those things, to persevere in the faith through those things. And so if we if we fail to sing those kinds of songs at times, I think to that degree we are failing to equip us to have a right expectation, a right view of the Christian life in this Life Now, Psalm 69 is also a messianic psalm, a messianic psalm. Now, what that means is that in this psalm, we find a number of explicit prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come. Now, the Psalms of David were written a thousand years before Christ came, which makes these things all the more amazing when you read them and see Jesus quoting them and the New Testament saying how they were fulfilled in different aspects of Christ's life and death in his earthly Ministry. Now, these things that David writes about, things in Psalm 69, things in Psalm 22 and elsewhere, uh, David details the, those things for us, and they were true of him uh, as far as they go. They were true of David's life. David wasn't making things up. He was saying, here's what I'm going through. But in an even greater sense, they point forward to the things that Jesus Christ, our Lord, suffered on our behalf. David serves Uh, in the Psalms and elsewhere as a type of the son of David who was David's son and yet David's Lord. That's what this psalm, one of the things this psalm has a lot to teach us about. This great psalm of David, it's it's rather long. You probably noticed that when I was reading it. And so we're not going to have time, I don't think, this morning to go through every single verse in great detail. So what we're going to do, Lord willing, this morning is to look at the big picture of Psalm 69 the big picture that David paints for us here, and see how it speaks of of Christ's sufferings on our behalf, and see also how it teaches us to approach the trials of our faith that are sure to come in this life. So one of the first things, one of the main themes throughout this psalm is that of waiting for God. Waiting for God, or waiting upon the Lord. Look at verses 1 through 3. David writes there, David says, Save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with what? With waiting for my God. His circumstances were bad enough. 
weren't they? We don't know what they were. He doesn't tell us specifically what the problem was, what the different trial, specific trial was, who it was that was his enemy, or who they were and what they were doing. But he says he felt as if he was in the water, in the ocean, and nowhere to put his feet, and the waves were overtaking him. And above all that, what does he say? He says he's weary, not just with his trial, but with his crying out. His throat was parched. It's as if his voice was hoarse from crying out to God. His eyes grew dim with waiting for his God, he says. Now, we don't know, again, what his circumstance was, what specific the, the specific, specific background was that, that uh, David was talking about here in this psalm. But whatever the case, David clearly felt overwhelmed in a situation. He pictures himself really as a, a drowning man. Not many more frightening images than that that I can think of, of being in the ocean and having nowhere to go and sinking in it. He felt like he was drowning. He felt like he was overwhelmed by his trials, and he pictures himself as a drowning man, as if he were sinking with no place to put his feet, and the waves were crashing over him. And the worst thing of all that is that, again, he wasn't just weary from his trial. He was weary from crying out to God for help and not yet receiving an answer. You know, we often like to think, well, if you pray... You pray once and God will answer. I have seen people say that it's, a, it's an act of unbelief or it's a, a problem of a lack of faith if you pray for something more than once. The Bible does not teach that. We pray the Lord's Prayer on a pretty regular basis. What the Bible teaches is that we don't pray like pagans. We don't just multiply words as if God is up there counting with a clicker. And if we get to just enough words, he's going to answer. That's not how God does things. That's how the prophets of Baal prayed. They just prayed more and more and and did all kinds of strange things as if they could manipulate God. You don't manipulate God when we pray. But sometimes God teaches us to persevere in prayer by making us wait. He has his purposes in doing just that. And sometimes that in and of itself is also a trial and a test of our faith as it was for David. And so I asked this morning, have you ever experienced anything like that? Have you ever had a trial, a severe trial in your life where you were praying for God to help and it seemed as if God was delaying the help. It seemed as if it wasn't really what was happening, but it felt as if in some ways God had hidden his face from your prayers and he was not answering and you were still wearing yourself out and wearying yourself with crying out to God. That's what David is writing about here for us this morning and I think it's there to teach us how we might be able to act in faith and persevere in faith and prayer in such a similar thing. Now, elsewhere throughout the Psalms, the psalmist cries out at Psalm 35 and Psalm 79. The psalmist says, How long, O Lord? You read about the same thing in the book of Revelation. The saints under, under the altar in, in, uh, in, in an image and a vision in the book of Revelation, they cry out, How long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood on, the, on our enemies who had, who had martyred them? think about that. David was the man after God's own heart. He was the man after God's own heart, and yet even David experienced this kind of thing in his life. It's easy for us, you know, if you grew up in the church as I did, and if you're old enough as I am to remember the little flannel graphs with all, you know, the little, the little cutouts, and they put them on the, on the flannel, and, and, you know, we, those flannel graphs were always about the highlights. There was no flannel graph for Psalm 69 that I can recall. There was a flannel graph for David victoriously beating Goliath. You know, all those, those Daniel and the lion's den, those were the things, and nothing wrong with those things. We, we need to learn those things too. They're there for our edification. Um, but 
the, the highlights don't tell you the whole story. Sometimes David went through times like this, and we need to know that for our own edification as well. I think that should give you and I encouragement when we suffer affliction and trial and even sufferings at the hands of, of the enemies of Christ. Even David knew what that was like, and that should spur us on to persevere in faith and in prayer. In fact, not just David, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself endured even greater things, uh, greater a, a greater degree of that same kind of thing uh, in his earthly ministry. Look at Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. Hebrews 5, verses 7 through 10. The writer says, In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus himself, in the days of his flesh, he says, offered up prayers and supplications. We get that part. We know Jesus prayed, but he says, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. You could say, in some sense, David prayed, or Jesus prayed the same kind of things that David prayed here. How long? We know that Jesus cried in his prayers. He cried out to God with tears. Think about all the times in the Gospels you read of Jesus going off alone to pray. He does it again and again. Sometimes he would just go somewhere by himself or with some of the the apostles to pray. Think about his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Three times he prayed the same thing. If someone ever tells you that praying the same thing over and over again uh, is, is necessarily a lack of faith, well, then Jesus had a lack of faith. Jesus prayed for that cup to pass from him, and what does he tell Peter, James, and John in Mark fourteen thirty four? He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. That's how Jesus felt during the trial that led up to his cross for our salvation. Luke twenty two forty four even says this, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus prayed in agony at times just like David writes up in Psalm 69. And Jesus endured all these things. Our Lord endured all these things, these sufferings, this persecution, even waiting upon God, his Father, in prayer, and even the cross itself. And he did all that for our salvation from sin. All the things you read about Jesus' suffering, up to and including the cross and his burial, were suffered by him, not for his own sake, certainly not for any wrongdoing he ever did, because he never did. He suffered those things for our sake, for our salvation. Now, much of this psalm is taken up in a description. David kind of describes for us without specific detail, but he describes for us his suffering at the hands of his enemies. But in all this psalm, when, when David talks about his sufferings, all of this really points us forward to the sufferings of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, David says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. David couldn't even number those who were, who were gathered against him, so to speak. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. Again, we don't know if this was a physical, you know, a, da- a physical danger he was in, but whatever the case, they were maligning his character, his faith in God. They were slandering against him, and he 
thought, thought of that as a great trial, which it is. And then he says, what I did not steal, must I now restore? We don't know what happened, but it's as if he's being punished for someone else's transgression. David's enemies were too too great to number. They seem to be everywhere, and although, you know, he does not claim to be without sin, does he? David doesn't say, I've never sinned, I've never done anything wrong. In fact, in verse 5, he says, The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Now, this can't be said of Christ. The whole psalm in every detail doesn't point to Christ, but... David is saying, I know I'm a sinner, you know I'm a sinner, you know better than I do. And yet he prays also that, he, and he puts in the psalm, that his enemies hated him without cause. What he's saying is, what well, we should be able to say as sincere Christians, if, if we experience persecution in this life, we're all sinners, we're saved by grace. But what David does is says, I, whatever this thing that they're persecuting me for, I did not bring it on myself. I did not do them wrong. I'm not suffering as an evildoer. There's nothing godly about suffering for our own wrongdoings against other people. But David was an innocent sufferer in the sense that he hadn't brought this on himself. Now, you might know that Jesus actually quotes verse 4 and applies it to himself explicitly and to those who persecuted him and his disciples after him. In John 15, verse 25, Jesus says, But the word uh, that is written in their law, the Old Testament, must be fulfilled, they hated me without a cause. He applies Psalm 69, verse 4, to himself and to the unbelieving Jews who rejected him and put him to death by the hands of wicked men. He's saying that that was a fulfillment of prophecy about him as the Messiah that was penned by David some thousand years before Christ was born. That's amazing. That had to be fulfilled for him to be the Christ, and it was written a thousand years before Christ came. They hated Jesus Christ without cause. In fact, everyone who hates Jesus Christ does so without cause. Think about think about Jesus' life and what he did. He never once sinned. He always went about doing good works and doing miracles. He always went about healing the sick, feeding the hungry, healing the lame and the blind, raising the dead at times. He taught the truth. He came to seek and save the lost. He always lived to obey the will of God his Father in all things in every way. No one ever loved his neighbor in every way the way that Jesus did. If you want to know what love looks like, you look at Jesus' life. In every every page of the description of Christ's life in the Gospels is, is an example for us of what loving God and loving neighbor really looks like. And yet people hated him. Many hated him and wanted him dead. Even the passage Rob read from John chapter 8 tells you over and over again they hated him. They claimed to be children of Abraham, but they wanted Jesus dead. They rejected his teachings, didn't receive his word, and so they weren't of him. They were of the evil one. There's no justification for rejecting Christ. There's no just cause for hating Jesus or blaspheming his name. Those who reject Christ and remain in their sins are therefore called by the scriptures justly such things as sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. Children of wrath, verse 3. The enemies of God, Romans 5, 11, and Philippians three eighteen. Paul talks about the enemies of the cross of Christ. At the end of verse 4, David says, What I did not steal must I now restore. Is that not a perfect analogy and description of the work of Christ on the cross? 
What did Jesus do on the cross if not restore what he had not stolen? He was the innocent sufferer who suffered the death of the cross on our behalf. He restored what we, so to speak, had stolen by our sin. He paid the price for our wrongdoings and our sins. Isaiah tells us Christ was a man of sorrows. We're going to sing that hymn later in the service. Man of sorrows, what a name. Well, Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 6 talks about Christ's death on the cross as in a sense restoring what he did not steal. Isaiah was written about 700 years before Christ. And listen to Isaiah 53, 6, uh, 53 3 through 6 as it talks about Christ's death for our sins. It says, He, Christ, the Messiah, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as from one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think about that whole passage. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Why? We, so to speak, looked at him in his sufferings and thought, oh, he must have had that coming. I wonder what he did. And what does Isaiah say? No, you got the whole thing wrong. You got the whole thing wrong. He bore our griefs. Those griefs on the cross should have been our griefs, should have been your griefs and sufferings. He carried our sorrows. His sorrows on the cross should have been yours. They should have been mine for our sin, not his. And yet what does he say? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He restored what he did not steal. Christ was a man of sorrows. Think about that. How much sorrow did Christ endure in his earthly life and ministry to be able to be called that? A man of sorrows. By all rights, he never should have been a man of sorrows. He had never once sinned, and yet he was despised and rejected by men, as if his sufferings were somehow proof that he had done wrong. But Isaiah tells us again, he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Here in this psalm, David prophesies of the cross of Christ. Look at verse 21. He says, They gave me poison for food, And for my thirst they gave me what? Sour wine to drink. David again wrote that a thousand years before the cross took place. He talked about the crucifixion. That that scene, that verse, that situation with the sour wine is written of by all four of the evangelists in their accounts of the cross of Christ in the four Gospels. John 19 verses 28 to 30 says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they they put a sponge full of the sour wine on on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, 
it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's as if that was one last prophecy he had to fulfill in his death on the cross. And where do you find it? A thousand years prior in Psalm 69, verse 21. Well, David doesn't just speak about his suffering, he speaks about his enemies. And so also the enemies of Christ the Lord throughout the psalm. He tells us again they ultimately hated David and hated Christ because they hated God. They professed to love God. David's enemies in the psalm, we don't know who they are, but you get the sense from reading the whole psalm, they professed the faith of Israel. They professed to believe in the one true and living God. And yet they hated Christ. And the same thing is true in Christ's day of the Pharisees and scribes. They weren't the pagans that were were crucified Christ, that hated him and persecuted him in all turns. It was people that claimed in some ways to believe in the Messiah, but they rejected him when he came. Well, the same is true in Psalm 69 of David's enemies. He he says in verse 7, It is for your sake, he's talking to God, it's for your sake that I have borne reproach. And in verse 8 he adds, he'd even become a stranger to his own brothers. You know, that was true and fulfilled in the life of Christ when his own brothers for a time, his own flesh and blood, rejected him, at least for a time. They did not, his own brothers did not believe in him for a while. And John 1 verse 11 kind of sums all that up at the beginning of the gospel. It says, He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The ones who should have believed didn't. They did not receive him. David then says that some of the hatred he endured, verse 9, was what? Was because of what? Because zeal for your house has consumed me. Maybe when I read that, that rang a, a couple bells from something else you read in the Gospels. That was fulfilled in Jesus' cleansing of the temple when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple in John chapter 2. Then they remembered that it was said, zeal for your house has consumed me. Jesus was zealous not just for the building itself, not just for the physical earthly temple, although he was zealous for that, but for what it represented. It was the house of God. And what else does the temple represent? Two things at least. One, his own body. Imagine what the one who that temple pointed to, when he saw what was going on in the temple that was blasphemous, he was filled with anger about it. He was zealous for the glory of God and God's house. And then also, what else does the temple represent? The church, God's people. He is zealous for his church. And he was zealous for it, and it brought anger and suffering to him because of it. Zeal for God's house consumed him. Does zeal for God's house consume you? Could somebody ever say that zeal for God's house consumes you? You know, many in the world around us, they will tolerate politely a half-hearted commitment to Christ and his church. Don't get carried away, they'll say. Oh, you're a Christian, you go to church, you check the box, okay, that's okay. But don't make me uncomfortable. Don't be too zealous for, for God, for Christ, and for his church. The man or woman who is zealous for Christ will not be tolerated. A Jesus freak will not be tolerated. They will tell you again not to get too carried away with this Jesus thing. And if you persist, you too will suffer reproach for the name of Christ. That is guaranteed to happen. But we need more people with a zeal for the house of God, with a zeal for Christ and for his people in this day and age. 
And so what should you and I do? The psalmist, I think, the psalm teaches us to patiently endure suffering and even persecution for the name of Christ. David here sets an example for us to sing and to remember. He teaches us how to pray. He teaches us how to endure. He teaches us in this psalm how to persevere in prayer. Remember David in the first number of verses in the psalm painted that picture of being kind of a drowning man, being overwhelmed by the waves. Um, he teaches us in the psalm. He says he, he felt overwhelmed. He thought he was going to be swept away, and so he prayed. He was sinking in the deep mire, and the flood was sweeping over him in verse 2. And so later in the psalm, in verse 15, he prays, Deliver me from sinking in the mire, verse 14, and let not the flood sweep over me, verse 15. He paints a picture of his situation and circumstance, his suffering, and then he asks God's deliverance from that very suffering and circumstance. Now David prayed for deliverance, he prayed for salvation on the basis of God's steadfast love in verse 13 and 16. He prayed for deliverance on the basis of God's abundant mercy in verse 16. That That is the basis on which every Christian must approach God for deliverance. David didn't say, God, you know how good I am. I'm zealous for your house, so you owe me one. He prays for God's deliverance of him based upon God's steadfast love in Jesus Christ, upon his abundant mercy. What did he, he prays according to God's own character, not his own character, God's character in love and mercy. But David doesn't stop there, does he? You know, if David had just stopped there, we'd be much more comfortable with this psalm, probably some of us. But he goes further than that. He doesn't just pray for deliverance. He also prayed imprecations against his enemies. If you read verses 22 through 28, that whole section there makes up one long prayer of imprecation against his enemies. Now, what does that mean, that word imprecation? It's asking God for, to pour out his judgment. It's asking God to judge the wicked who were his enemies and the enemies of Christ. That is what David prays in some explicit terms here in those verses. In, in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms, Dr. Robert Godfrey, who was the former president of Westminster Seminary down in, Cal- down in Escondido, my, he was the president when I attended there, in his book, Learning to Love the Psalms, he writes this of Psalm 69. These imprecations are the most terrifying in the Psalter. If you want to, in other words, if you want an example of imprecation, this is the one. He prays, David does, he prays that his enemies may be impoverished and oppressed, that they may lose home and heritage, but even more, he prays that they may be damned. That's what he's praying there. May they have no acquittal from you, he says. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. You know, imprecations are not just an Old Testament thing. Some people act like it's an Old Testament thing and somehow God has changed and so we aren't to do that anymore. That's not true. There's imprecations in the book of Revelation. David, what does David, or what, excuse, excuse me, what does Paul say about somebody who would preach another gospel? If any man comes to you and preaches another gospel, he tells the Galatians, let him be what? Accursed. What's he saying? It's an imprecation. He's saying, let God judge them. Let them go to hell, is what he is saying. If anybody would preach you a false gospel, that's what they deserve. And Paul wasn't afraid to even pray that, even as David prayed against his enemies in Psalm 69. Now this this often makes sincere, well-meaning believers uncomfortable. And, I, and there's reason for that. 
But it must also, it must be kept in mind that in praying this way, in praying prayers of imprecation against his enemies, what is David doing there? He's forsaking wrath. He's leaving vengeance to God, to God's just judgment against the, the wicked. He was zealous for God's glory to be vindicated. He was not praying out of petty personal animosity. He wasn't praying for God to judge people he doesn't like or whom he finds annoying or inconvenient. He was praying for God's just, just judgment on those who hated Christ and hated Christ's cross. This does not exclude praying for our enemies. Jesus said to pray for your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Jesus prayed for, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do from the cross. And yet he wasn't ashamed to quote Psalm 69. And the New Testament even quotes the imprecation part in some ways uh, in the New Testament. The wickedness of David's enemies and the enemies of Christ is evident in that they hated him and persecuted him for his zeal for God's house and for the glory of God's name. Their guilt is further aggravated by the fact that in hating King David, who were they really attacking? They were attacking the one who stood before them as a type of Christ, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ who was to come. Why did his enemies hate David? What was the main reason, the real ultimate reason? It's because he was a picture of Christ. Not a perfect image of Christ, but he was a foreshadowing of the Christ who was to come. In fact, David's enemies, in verse 25, are quoted in the New Testament in the book of Acts as foreshadowing of Judas Iscariot himself. In verse Acts 1, verse 20, when it talks about letting his camp be desolate, let no one dwell there. That's quoted in Acts one twenty about Judas's death. And so the, even the imprecation from Psalm 69 is quoted in the New Testament. In the same way, the enemies of the cross of Christ today constantly rage against the church in various ways, even in fright, frightfully violent ways with bloodshed. You think about our brothers and sisters in, in the Lord in Nigeria. seems like every other day I'm seeing a new report of, of Christians being slaughtered for the faith in Nigeria and elsewhere. They're being martyred to this day. Martyrdom is not some ancient old thing that doesn't happen. And so God's people have every right to pray in some ways the prayers of imprecation we find here. You and I must pray for the persecuted church. Pray for them. Uh, pray for their deliverance. And even at times pray for God's just judgment upon the wicked who persecute them and seek to kill them and stomp out the gospel of Christ. They hate them because they hate Christ. They see Christians, what's, what, what does the word Christian mean? I think we heard it last week, little Christ. In some, they, they see just a little sliver of Christ in us, and that's why they hate God's people very often. Well, the last thing this great Psalm of David does is it ends, it starts with David being overwhelmed by a flood, and it ends on a note of praise. David turns from imprecation upon his enemies in verses 22 to 28 to praise in verses 30 to 36. And those things are not contrary. Those things, as we see, go together in this psalm. David expresses confidence in God's steadfast love in Christ that he would deliver him from his affliction and his enemies. And so what's the response? He, he praises God. He praises his God. Look at verses 30 to 31. He writes, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooks. He's saying, what is God? What pleases God more? An animal sacrifice, which was never an end in and of itself, 
or David praising God for his mercies, which are found in the sacrifice of Christ his son on his behalf. How fitting is it in our text this morning uh, that it reminds us of the importance of praising God, the name of our God, quote, verse 30, with a song. That is our response. It's not something that we should make optional for the church. We're to praise God with a song, and he's pleased more by that than if we had offered some kind of sacrifice. The sacrifice of praise is pleasing to God. It pleases him, David said, more than even an ox or a bull with hooves being offered. If we have known the grace of God in Jesus Christ, how can we not praise the name of our God with a song? If we don't, perhaps the rocks themselves will cry out, as Jesus said. David even says in verse 34, Let heaven and earth praise him, the sea and everything that moves in them. He's describing all of creation. He's saying, I'm not enough. We're not enough. Let let all of creation praise our God for his steadfast love and mercy in Christ. And why is that? Why is God to be praised? Look at verse 35. Because God will save Zion. He will save his people. He will save his holy people. And the offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name, verse 36, shall dwell in it. Now, what's that, what's that, what does that mean? Simply put, it's talking about Jesus Christ building his church and the gates of hell never being able to prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. It's talking about the same kind of thing that Paul says in Romans eight thirty seven when he says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He doesn't say you'll never suffer, far from it. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, but he also says, we're accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. But even that can't separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. Even even despite all that, we are more than conquerors through him, through Christ who loved us. And so, while you and I might find ourselves from time to time waiting upon our God in prayer and wearing us out in prayer and in waiting, in due time, God will hear us and answer that you and I will find ourselves, even in the midst of our trials, praising the name of our God. Isaiah 40, verses 30 to 31, we'll close with this, says, Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who what? They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen.